our guest today is a dear old friend, Yanis Manuelides. Yanis is a legendary sovereign debt lawyer of the two or three legends of the legal field. And he has been incredibly generous to us over the years in helping us understand how this market works and why the strange things that we observe are either justifiable or are actually strange and bizarre. And so the timing is particularly good given that a bunch of new developments are in the offing and also because I am extremely optimistic this week after a long, long time, years of pessimism about the future state of our world. I, I suspect that uh, Mark and Yanis share some of my optimism, although I'm not absolutely sure. I, I have stopped listening uh, to the news after I got the election results and started seeing the beginnings of some, I will not go uh, and uh, I will not share my toys with you sort of a reaction from some of our politicians. So let me start um, with the substantive question. We've talked on this podcast a lot about the need to get the poorer countries of the world, the IDA countries and a number of emerging market countries debt relief so that they can address the coronavirus. And we've talked about uh, the DSSI initiative that was put in place starting about April of 2020, the uh, debt service suspension initiative that was put out by, with great fanfare by the official sector. I think it's safe to say that it was a big uh, nothing burger, but it is time now for us to start thinking about what to do this next time around. Uh, and Giannis, I suspect has been in the middle of many of the high level discussions. And I'm hoping you can give us some clues, Yanis, about what needs to be done in this next round to ensure that A, poor countries ask for relief and B, that they're actually given relief. So welcome and help us understand the world, please. <laughs> well, thank you very much. Uh, uh, me too, and, and Mark uh, for having me. And um, I, I do not know that I deserve the praise. Um, uh, people will probably think at the end of it, uh, who is this crazy person who called for this, uh, for this event? Um, so uh, let's start uh, with, uh, with um, DSSI. Um, first of all, what I'm going to say, are my sort of personal views. Uh, I do participate in various fora where people express all sorts of views. Uh, and I've spoken with a number of um, uh, people um, both in the official sector and the private sector. But uh, what, what you're going to hear from me are my views. And I have to say they're probably um, not the current orthodox views. Um, they, uh, I, I, I too share your view that the DSSI unfortunately has not been a success so far. Um, and um, 
I do not know that I would really start uh, again from where we left it uh, last time. Uh, we will know more about how the DSSI will go later this month when the G20 will uh, produce some uh, uh, framework agreement. Um, but it seems to me they will probably uh, go along the same path they followed so far. And um, what is it and, and what, what, what would I have done kind of different? So certainly like the, the man who wanted to go to Dublin, I wouldn't start from, from, from here. Uh, so uh, where, where would I start? Well, it was a very well-meaning initiative to support the poorest countries. Uh, and the ones who, and again, you know, just important to know what countries we're talking about, are the ones whose currency does not enjoy some sort of exorbitant privilege, uh, like the euro or the yen, or the, so the dollar most importantly. Uh, they have few, if any, reserves, and they have limited, if no, market access. And let's, let's call, I'll be calling the relevant countries. Now, the DSSI focused on just the IDA countries plus Angola, but I think, you know, when we talk about possible problems without naming anyone in particular, we should be ready to add also some emerging markets uh, to the list. And we need to be ready for that. Um, but I think before we start, uh, doing that, we have to know what it is we're trying to fix. And are all the countries the same? What data do we have on the countries? Uh, what policies do we want to promote? Uh, what commitments transparency, transparency are we going to get from, from any of them? Uh, what capacity building steps do we treat, uh, need to put in place? Now, all of these things are obviously uh, <clears throat> policy issues, not, not legal issues, but I think that's where one needs to start from. Now, what was done uh, was uh, to follow a uh, voluntary intercreditor approach, um, i.e. the official sector said, this is what we're going to do. We're going to defer debt uh, uh, service for a certain period. And we ask you the private sector to do the same. And that was basically it um, on, on the same terms. And, uh, and that was it. And I found this absolutely astonishing uh, because it misunderstands the role and purpose of both of the official and the private sector. And the public sector pursues public interest initiatives and can easily participate in them. The private sector is a much simpler organism. It pursues only one thing, profit. And uh, you know, it was maligned for like, pursuing that, but in fact, that's what it has to pursue. It's, it's made up to do that. And, and, and as you know, in some countries, you know, putting in fact your, your company's assets at risk of a loss for, for no reason is even a criminal offense uh, in France in particular or Greece that I know uh, more, more intimately. So uh, the, the private sector can only respond to these things if there is something uh, in it for them. And usually the way the public sector, the official sector makes it so is by using policy carrots and sticks and there were none here. Um, so you cannot appeal to charity because you know they, you know they're not charitable organization. So so what what would you do? Um, so the the you know the, I'll I'll tell you what my idea is on that. But I'll also say that because of the way that the thing has been approached, which is as I said, mostly uh, um, no data and uh, no clear policy. Uh, uh, guidelines, no differentiation between the countries. Uh, we started talking too early, I think, about legal tools that we'd use. And um, to the point that we've nearly fetishized them. 
Uh, and legal tools are, of course, are important. And the CACs, of course, are the most important, super important. We all know that. But on the whole, legal tools do not provide magical solutions. If there is no deal to be done with incentives in the right place, legal tools will achieve nothing. Uh, if the incentives are in the right place, legal tools will be produced in short order. So standstills, for instance, happen because people think that that's the uh, you know, thing that everybody should do, the optimal solution for all. They're usually formalized after the event. So what would I do? So first of all, I think on DSSI, I would start with the observation already made by some people in the private sector early on and repeated in a more sophisticated way by Jeremy Zettelmeyer during a Peterson webinar uh, around, I think, the 1st of October, which I urge people to, to go and see. Uh, and so basically he said, look, there are some countries that will need a liquidity boost plus do the usual reforms. Okay, he's in the IMF and economists, he'll always need some reforms. Um, but they just need a liquidity boost. And the other countries, some of them need a preemptive restructuring, a liquidity boost plus reforms. And then some other countries will simply be too late and they'll have to default. And we'll have to restructure the debt. But, uh, but we need to try to move and differentiate, you know, move quickly and differentiate between them. Now, assuming we, you know, and I broadly believe that that's, that's how one should do it. And, you know, one should have data and, and one should focus on each category of countries. So for the first category, the one that just needs liquidity boost and reforms, I would try to give liquidity boost structured as new debt. Uh, I'll explain that, that's, that's actually important. Um, so the, uh, in, and also in this category, because default is unlikely, uh, that's how we define the category, the new debt, I would try to have the new debt benefit from some sort of credit enhancement from an IFI that has preferred credit. Yanis, I'm so sorry, I'm gonna yeah. uh, interrupt you because I, I just want to be clear on the point that you're making. So is, is the sort of uh, Jeremin Yanis point here that we are able, we're, we are actually able to tell what kind of, uh, sort of crisis situation that countries are facing? Because my sense is perhaps incorrectly that we have no clue about what kind of crisis most of these countries are facing. And we definitely did not have a very good idea about six months ago, you know, given that we, we, we really didn't have a good sense of how the virus was going to cause harm. And, it's probably safe to say that it has caused a lot more harm than we expected. Yeah, I, I, I have no doubt about that, but I think, I don't know what Jeremy would say, but I, I know he likes numbers. So I would have thought that he would say this, you need, we need to look at the numbers first. Uh, and I would agree with him. I, and I, I, you know, look, in this effort, the DSSI, nobody mentioned numbers. Everybody started producing solutions uh, to a problem that was not well-defined. Numbers started uh, appearing uh, first actually from the private sector, from the uh, IIF, uh, and then later on a much greater number more details from the World Bank, uh, but they lagged. Um, now, the numbers certainly are not going to tell us the full story. And I agree that there's a lot of uncertainty about the damage that has been caused. Um, but, um, and, and undoubtedly this is, you know, none of these solutions will be perfect, and in some instances, we'll have to try again and again. But 
currently, I just see policy uh, being proposed without numbers. And I just find this astonishing. Uh, it, but Yanis, before, before you move into the other category too, I, it sound, am I right to say that you are, it sounds like you're rejecting the, what I had taken to be the underlying premise of DSSI, which is that everyone needs a breather and the breather will probably not um, be the last intervention that many governments need, but all of them need it in the short term to deal with COVID. And for some of them, it might be enough. And so the kind of particularized numbers-based of country by country analysis that you're calling for might very well, you might wind up um, persuading me that that really is the right approach, but it seems in principle to, to um, sort of reject the, the underlying point of the DSSI. Am, am I misreading you? Well, I, I, think, I think a little bit because what I started by saying is that, you know, we need to help all these countries that, uh, um, that do not have um, the uh, the poorest countries, the ones who don't enjoy the currency advantage and all that. So I I, I, I very much said that, and I very much believe that uh, we need we need to. But in order to be effective, we need to make the distinction into categories, because otherwise we're going to have an impasse, and we're going to be led into more of what we what has happened so far, which is not much. Uh, we're going to, to, to see the official sector doing, at least in part, uh, some um, debt relief, uh, uh, giving some debt relief. We're going to see the private sector not giving a lot of debt relief uh, because there is no clarity as to, and there's no leadership. And they, they, you know, as I said, they are not, the private sector is not set to, pro to provide this sort of relief. The private sector does things for profit and for interest and it is guided in that with uh, policy tools. So uh, I think that- So Giannis, um, sorry, yeah. I, we, we're, um, we're so full of questions for you that we're, we keep interrupting, but um, the, the private sector, I'm trying to understand the, 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 the barrier here with the private sector. So to, to go back to uh, the point that I, I think Mark was making, as I understood the initial impetus for the DSSI, the idea was, look, all of these countries, all of the poorest countries, and maybe some of the emerging market countries, although it's a different question as to why we didn't include some of the emerging market countries uh, in, in the initial relief efforts, all of these countries need help because they've suffered an unexpected shock and they need to be able to invest in public health. So we're going to give them all an, in, an interest holiday and there doesn't need to be investigation into what's going on because it is so obvious that this is a situation in which they need assistance. And Initially, the private sector seemed to say, yes, we, we agree too. Uh, we think this is a wonderful initiative. Uh, we, 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 we applaud it. We're going to help. And then it turned out 
you know, they they had all sorts of reasons for why they couldn't help, but they they didn't seem to be saying, or at least they seem to be saying in the beginning that it is in our interest, in our profit maximizing interest as well to give this initial relief. And so the, I guess the question is, if okay. they were being honest, is it just a coordination problem? Like they, they just couldn't coordinate or is it that they were not being genuine or is it that the official sector no, really needed yeah, I, to give them something yeah. more? I, 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 um, I, there are just too many things there. But first of all, in, in what you've said, but first of all, let me just say, um, you know, people, you lumping together private sector and just saying the private sector wanted that, that, that is, that, that's probably not terribly helpful. And I think the IF in being pushed to sort of be the spokesperson for the, all the private sector probably accepted an impossible role, a very, uh, certainly a very difficult role, uh, and probably one that, um, that makes it, is going to weaken its, its uh, real, um, the, the real strengths that it has for, for contribution and other things. So uh, when I speak to, about private sector, I just think of uh, the, the various entities that I'm familiar with over the years. And as I said, you know, for them, you know, if you tell them here is the opportunity, you know, to go go and put money in the in in, in these uh, uh, places, and here is this credit enhancement. The likelihood these people will default is very low. Uh, and um, you know, by the way, the IMF is coming in and is also putting non-macro tools uh, to ensure a greater transparency, better governance, uh, sustainability, and so on and so forth. If you do that. Um, if you follow tools of that sort, and I can describe some of these tools, then the private sector will move into these places. If you tell the private sector, these other, play, these other countries need uh, uh, very quickly to do a preemptive uh, restructuring and, uh, and then move effectively back into the first category, they will do it. To just call them all, you know, to, to, to just give them money like that, that's just simply not going to work. And, uh, and that I think was a big mistake, and and still it will be a big mistake if if we continue to do it. Um, you know, so I'm gonna I'm gonna interrupt you again as as I will keep doing unless Mark tells me <laughs> to shut up. Is um, I think I understand. Uh, you you made it very clear why the first initiative failed, and at the beginning of our uh, conversation you had said that there was a new initiative sort of in the offing. I think you referred to it as yes. the framework, uh, but you seemed skeptical that, that the official sector will have learned this lesson that you were just explaining to us and that we're just gonna get uh, the same thing, the same sort of exhortation without any real plan to make it work. Was I reading your skepticism correctly? Well, um, this is my own personal skepticism, yes. Uh, and it's it's only because it's, it's a, I have no concrete evidence for that um, so far, other than statements that I've heard, um, both officially and unofficially. Uh, and I just, I think it would be a crying shame if this happens. Um, uh, there is a lot of, um, um, you know, there are a lot of kind of threats about, you know, if you don't participate, then, you know, we'll, we'll do other sort of bad things to you um, that, I've, that I've heard. I hope they're not true. Uh, but 
so far, we know nothing about this, this framework. It's going to come out uh, when the G20 meet. I mean, the G20 itself needs to sort out various um, participation and transparency issues itself um, because of uh, the way it, the state entities of some of the uh, uh, G20 members participate or not, do not participate. But again, for me, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a debt lawyer and I see um, a debtor you know, in various kind of phases. I, I appreciate that you know, right now we have an, an unusual problem, uh, something that has happened, uh, has caused this country's uh, immense new liquidity needs uh, for no fault of their own. And if there was only one creditor around and there was all these people were one debtor, surely the right thing would be, the rational thing would be to do, uh, to do just that, to, 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 to give them this relief. Unfortunately, the coordination problem that you mentioned is there. And in order to solve it, you need to have some sort of distinctions. You need to place the countries in various categories. And then uh, the same way that you would try to solve it, you know, for the people who are in slightly better position, people in the middle, people who are worse off, you try to fashion different solutions. That's how you're going to mobilize the private sector. Um, and I think there are ways of doing it, and we haven't spent enough time um, talking about these. So maybe that's a good point uh, to take our break. And when we come back, we can talk a little bit about some mechanisms that might help quickly segregate countries in the way that you're describing, Giannis. And, and I know we have some other questions we wanted to ask also so um, about contingent debt and things like that. So let's take a short break and, and we'll come back and talk about those things. So we are back from our break and Giannis, we left off at a, a point that I think is maybe a good transition point to talk about uh, contingent debt. Uh, uh, subject we know that you have been at the forefront of thinking about and in particular uh, developing the documentation for the use of GDP indexed bonds. And, and I want to talk a little bit about those bonds, which, um, you know, I, I wouldn't claim any great expertise, but I, many prominent economists see these kinds of instruments as really sensible ways for countries to plan for unanticipated risks. And so I, I, since you've given more thought to the legal structure of these instruments than anyone, I wanted to ask you two questions, really. So first of all, if you could just say a little bit about the difficulty in reaching a, a agreement on a sensible structure for, for GDP index bonds. And then second of all, it's surprising to me, I guess, that we've seen so little uptake. And I wonder if you have an explanation for why these instruments haven't spread through the market, even though people have been advocating for them for many, many years. Yes. Well, uh, thank you. This is, it is indeed um, uh, something I uh, like very much. It's, it has become a hobby horse. It's just sort of by accident uh, because I was approached by the Bank of England economists who had been working on that together with the Bank of Canada um, to actually start a different type of debate um, to, to produce a term sheet so we could engage in a practical way with the various stakeholders. Because until then, 
uh, it was all mostly an economic uh, academic debate, uh, lots of formula, nothing more specific. And I, I, if I'm allowed to make a comment here, just generally, uh, there's a lot of economists and also I would say um, market participants, especially traders, just uh, ignore uh, the law uh, and just do not really uh, understand uh, that um, uh, the market is really a legal construct. Um, unless you're talking about uh, the souk where you go and you kind of negotiate everything uh, each time. And uh, you know, once you conclude the deal, then there's nothing, nothing else. But um, it's, it's one thing me uh, going and buying a, the, the local uh, meat market in London, uh, a piece of uh, bacon and, uh, and buying pork bellies in the futures market. So the, the latter is possible, you know, and the certainty and uh, that I have that I can only focus on price and quantity because of the law. And, and, and I think, you know, I was surprised that, you know, lawyers actually were brought in so late to think of how exactly how such a, a, a GDP linked bond would be structured. So what we did was we produced a term sheet, which we called London, the London term sheet. And it's, it really, it, it has lots of features, but the basic idea is GDP principle and interest vary uh, with uh, uh, nominal uh, GDP. So the principle and interest on the bonds vary with nominal GDP uh, by reference to a starting date. Um, and there are all sorts of in interesting issues of whether you, how the CACs would work together with the fixed rate bonds, uh, whether, uh, what happens if somebody's trying to sort of, uh, um, is not being terribly transparent with the numbers, et cetera. But we can talk about that. But, but basically uh, what I want to say is why, why is it that everybody thinks such a great idea? Why is it that it has not been taken up? And so the, the reality is that DMOs, uh, debt management agencies, operate uh, usually with a very narrow mandate, and that is low funding costs. And what they do is they are fixated on uh, the yield curve of their bonds. And you know, getting the yield curve to, to run smoothly and having ample liquidity in the various series of bonds they issue, et cetera, brings the yields down, the prices up, and that's what they like. And you know, that's what their customers like, the investors, that's what they like as well, because they play this game together and they all live in a, in a world where liquidity, uh, you know, basically trumps uh, credit, um, uh, credit uh, assessment. And, and so the, the, that I think is very important. Um, so Yanis, just to clarify, um, because this, this is fascinating. So if I were to put it, try to put it in the terms that we use with our students in explaining uh, the evolution of contract terms in the market and innovation in the market, are you describing a market failure, sort of the failure of the market to adopt terms that would be good for them. Like the, I think this was the premise that Mark started with, you know, all these fancy economists like Bob Schiller and uh, Joe Stiglitz say that this is the optimal term that sovereigns should start using it. And then they don't. And then the question is, why are they not using it? One answer is, well, they're not using it because they don't like it. It costs too much. It doesn't uh, balance their risk portfolios in the proper way. The other answer is, 
you know, they're, they're just sort of short-sighted or there are structural features uh, about the incentives of debt management officers and investors. I, I think you are describing a market failure and structural impediments. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, well, I don't know that I would describe it as a market failure. Um, I'm, I'll be more humble than this and just I'll just say that unfortunately or fortunately this, this is what's happening. You know, both uh, issuers and investors focus on liquidity and tradability. Uh, what is okay, so, so let, let me let me let me come at the question differently, since you're you're yeah. eluding uh, my attempt to force <laughs> no, you to I, say I, that I, it's I, a market I, failure. Um, <laughs> uh, but that's because you are a very very good lawyer. So I'm going to come at it differently and say, you know, you you were involved in um, the development of collective action clauses. You've been involved in other successful uh, innovations in the sovereign debt market. Uh, probably you've been involved in many successful innovations in the corporate debt market. And all of these have taken time. It is initially investors are very resistant to doing the things that they tell us that they themselves want to do. Are the, is the story with the GDP linked bonds or value recovery instruments or hurricane clauses. Is the story with these contingent instruments basically the same that uh, it just takes a long time to educate the market and you need some official sector enthusiasm to really persuade uh, countries like Mexico to be the first, first movers in, in a matter like this? Is, is that what we're talking about? Or is or, it just or is by a different story? Or by contrast, is the problem, just to, to kind of complete the circle here, the, the uncertainty about whether governments can be trusted to transparently and accurately report GDP data when their repayments uh, obligations are linked to it. Certainly we've seen some courtesy of Argentina, we've seen some recent examples of how GDP index securities can go bad from an investor's perspective. So maybe the problem is just, this is a really hard contract to write in a way that constrains governments. Yeah, well, let, let me start with this last one because I don't think that is it, you know, and, uh, you know, there are, there will always be, uh, you know, debtors who will maybe want to play games uh, with the numbers or are not uh, economical with the truth, whatever. And we've seen them also in the private sector. You know, we know about Enron and we know about others. And that does not, does not stop people using, you know, audited accounts or uh, generally accepted uh, principles, et cetera. So, so I don't think that that is, that is that. And indeed, in our term sheet, we have a specific provision dealing with uh, entities that are not providing uh, good uh, numbers and are not subscribing to the standards that the IMF has promulgated. And the IMF has uh, the enhanced special data dissemination standards uh, that, that would be appropriate for, uh, for GDP. So, um, and we have in our term sheet, uh, a put event which allows individual investors to basically uh, claim their money back immediately and with an upside 
if uh, the issuer starts playing games of this sort. So we, we've tried to build this protection exactly to, uh, uh, to put this fear aside. Now, as to first mover, I agree. It, you know, it, has, it took a long time for the inflation-linked bonds to catch up, and finally they did. A first mover that helped, I think it was Canada, and actually I've always uh, I've been trying to persuade people from the Ministry of Finance of Canada that that's what they, they should do that, and actually they should do it with Mexico. Uh, they should, uh, each one should um, have a small issue, um, you know, a few billion, uh, and one country buys them one of the other, corresponding more or less to the trade, uh, um, trade balances uh, over time, uh, so as to also give some sort of economic rationale to it. And the idea there is that if, if you have somebody like Canada do it first, you know, nobody will expect, you know, nobody will put a risk premium on them for playing games or for innovation, et cetera, and they will have settled the path. So, so therefore I, I agree that there is a little bit of resistance there, but there's more work to be done. All I wanted to say with what I, my original point is, this is done in the background where liquidity kills credit assessment. And ultimately, GDP-linked bonds are about credit assessment. Um, uh, and, and liquidity has killed that. And it's happened in my uh, career. You know, Bankers used to say, how are they going to repay? Now bankers say, how am I going to sell that? So, um, and, and, and this is a much broader issue. Let's not go into, into liquidity, but, um, you, know, I, I, you know, unless one so want to. But I want to say there's some other things that we need to work on still. We need to uh, uh, make sure that regulatory treatment is appropriate. So there are some investors, for instance, people that have need to have asset and liability matching, uh, there are people who have property and casualty uh, businesses and insurance, who actually want uh, these instruments. But if the uh, regulator says they have to classify them as equity, they can't take them. Um, then there are equally some uh, long-term investors, sovereign wealth funds and the like, that uh, would, are interested in credit quality and interested in yield. And I think we need to interest them. And um, we need to get the raters to basically treat them as sui generis uh, um, instruments, because right now uh, the, uh, the raters treat anything that doesn't pay, uh, even if it doesn't pay according to the contract, uh, it doesn't pay uh, for a particular period, they, 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 they deem it to be a default. Uh, and that, that, that is just very unhelpful. And we need to have a broader discussion with the rating agencies also in the context of DSSI, by the way. Um, but um, uh, well, it can't, can't be done overnight. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, let, let me- That uh, certainly seems true. You, you, um, you, got, you uh, invoked the DSSI. And so um, I, I wanna <laughs> ask the question of whether all of these problems can be surmounted given that we need a solution to deal with COVID right now? And could uh, the kind of contingent instruments that you have helped design, could they be the magic solution for uh, our uh, second round of DSSI? I, I've heard murmurings that uh, at least some people, at, I think at the Bank of England and at the Bank of Canada, uh, think that this is the time uh, to give people contingent uh, sovereign debt instruments because if they're complaining that, look, we shouldn't be giving relief uh, because these countries can actually uh, pay us back or they're complaining uh, on the other side that the relief is too little, 
uh, a contingent instrument actually solves uh, both sides of that equation. And I'm wondering whether I can make you uh, optimistic uh, that maybe this is the year for contingent sovereign debt, or maybe well, next. Yeah, no, that's that, that's a very good point. And indeed, uh, one of my friends amongst a group of uh, GDP uh, enthusiasts that we have and discuss these things thinks that this is the year for the very reasons that you've mentioned. Um, I, I, I also note that the IMF in its recent paper, which is uh, came out on the 1st of October, mentions them and, and they promised us a further paper, which I don't believe has come out yet. Uh, and I think they need, they, they want to promote them for the very reason you mentioned, and we discussed in the context of DSSI before, namely that you may not, because of the scars, the economic scars may be, may be deep and, and uh, you know, not, not capable of being immediately assessed, you, there will be uh, uncertainty for some time and having contingent instruments allows uh, people to move forward because you say, well, here, it is, if, if, if we do very well, you'll, you'll, you'll be paid back and forth, uh, or you even make an upside. If not, you'll, you'll give us the relief. Now, um, one has to say, and, and I agree that that's a, it's, a, it's a good way to start, and we need to think of contingent uh, instruments in the context of DSSI tools. And uh, in my, in my, in my, my uh, toolkit that I was going to say before, I, was, uh, you know, I had them there as well. But, but, you know, one needs to distinguish between things that we've used in the past, like warrants uh, that do not have a principal amount, and they will simply catch up instruments for restructuring, and GDP-linked bonds that will help, um, you know, deal uh, with a catastrophe scenario. And the reason for which we think, uh, I, I certainly think that they ought to be used is because of the credit risk that countries have from exogenous uh, uh, risks such as now climate and now we've seen health. And it would have been interesting for somebody to do the exercise of saying, well, how, how would the countries that now are, you know, we're seeking to give uh, DSSI relief for, how would they have fared uh, had they uh, had a substantial part of the debt uh, in such, uh, you know, GDP form or, or, other, or other suitable uh, contingent form. Yannis, uh, so, well, yeah. While we have you, sorry, there, there are just there are so many questions that we that we were interested in asking, and I, I wanted, in our remaining time, if you don't mind, to transition to to one of the ones that Me Too and I have been talking about, and know that you have um, uh, uh, almost certainly a, a, a lot to say on, and that has to do with the structural reforms in the eurozone and. Um, it wasn't that long ago that there was a lot of drama associated with the the move towards single limb collective action clauses, and and I guess I I want to ask you to to say a little bit about um, that move. So we've seen in Argentina and we've seen in Ecuador recently what um. It's probably not too strong to say we've seen the failure of the the kind of market standard single limb CAC, the ICMA CAC. And so I'm sort of wondering what your view is on the usefulness or, or lack of usefulness of single limb CAC, since that still seems to be a central part of the kind of Eurozone restructuring reform yeah. agenda. Well, 
again, if I may say, you know, although I think the, uh, the CAC reforms um, and the ECMA clauses uh, as used, even though the, the aggregate um, thing with a single name was not used in Argentina and Ecuador, I, I think there were very, very good reforms. Uh, we probably learned a few things. Maybe we can think and improve them. I think they were, they were good. Uh, um, um, whether they are useful for the Eurozone is another question. Uh, and I think, again, we are on the risk of fetishizing uh, legal tools. Uh, the Eurozone is not going to be saved if we have a perfect CACs or if we don't have perfect CACs. The Eurozone has a much a, a more difficult and different problem. And, uh, you know, some economists think, um, including one that's well known to uh, me and myself, uh, you know that there's no 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 redemption. There's no there's no way the eurozone will ever be able to solve this, um, you know, as, as it is, uh, and and will have to kind of break up. Um, the Europeans, uh, including myself, think that that's not the case, and we will always be able to find uh, new solutions and kind of move forward. Perhaps moving like a drunken drunken crab, you know, all over the place, but. But we will move move somewhere uh, to a solution. Now, I don't think the CACs will solve it because I don't think that uh, uh, the issue, for instance, in Italy is whether you can get agreement uh, from uh, all, all the bondholders. Now, that it will help uh, because it would be it would be nice if you have to take a, a decision not to have to uh, use. Um, the local law advantage by going back and you know changing up, you know ch changing the terms of your loans uh, of your of your bonds you know, uh, you know after the event um, it's always risky uh, even though it's there are certain circumstances in which you can do it um, and all three of us have discussed this uh, a lot uh, but I think uh, you know that you know you should avoid it if you can so putting the CACs will help but I think the eurozone will need to think of you know, to evolve in a slightly different uh, uh, way. I want to just mention here on the Eurozone, you know, if you, you know, something which I think nobody has, uh, has noticed, um, you know, about Greece. So Greece was the first one, and in fact, so far, the only country for which the Eurozone provided a solution with its new uh, um, mechanisms. It didn't have aggregate CACs, but thanks to the famous law and retrofitting, it, it, it got them. So it's in a way it is it is there, but what has happened is that the main um, uh, creditor of Greece now is basically the rest of Europe through the ESM, and they hold so much and such long maturities that effectively it makes them an equity holder in the country, um, and the commitment that Greece will never have to exceed fifteen percent of its GDP for gross financing needs means they're committed to restructuring that debt forever until, you know, uh, you know to, to make that happen. So uh, we're, we're dealing with debt restructuring in a completely different way. And a lot will depend on politics. I don't think, you know, the, um, uh, the, the, the CACs on their own will solve them. Um, and I think, you know, we have a lot more to learn from seeing how in fact the ESM operates in, in, in Greece nowadays, what sort of supervision and surveillance uh, Greece has, uh, and also how, again, to go back to my point about the evolution of debt management agencies, how they should evolve and work all together uh, to uh, promote debt sustainability at the Eurozone level. So 
Um, I, I'm, yeah. I, I know our, we're running out of time and uh, Liana is not going to be happy with us for uh, going over time, but I, I um, can't uh, resist but ask you uh, the last question that I very much uh, wanted to ask you about in the context of discussions I've had with my students. So this, the podcast is about contract clauses and we try to use it to teach our students about how you interpret contracts in the international financial world and also how you draft them and why strange occurrences show up <laughs> in the drafting world. And one of the puzzles that Mark and I have discussed a lot over the past few years has to do with the systematic differences in English law sovereign debt contracts and New York law sovereign debt contracts. And I'm oversimplifying dramatically based on two sets of clauses in particular, the prescription clauses and governing law clauses that Mark and I have uh, written about recently. Although the CAC clauses, the most recent version of CAC clauses also seem to differ in New York and England in ways in which that I had not expected. Uh, but oversimplification is that I, for one, at least see that the English contracts typically have clauses that are shorter. There is less variation across the types of clauses that are produced by the different firms. And finally, they seem to react faster to exogenous factors like regulatory developments. And in particular, uh, if there are EU directives about uh, something or the other, my impression is the English law contracts react faster. Now, we haven't actually uh, done systematic research on this, but you are both American and English. I, I guess it's not, you're also Greek, uh, but you've, you've worked with American law firms and English law firms at the highest level. And can you tell us something about the structural differences or maybe it's all about, you know, English law differing from American law or uh, the, the sort of the training of lawyers differing? I know, I know we have very little time. Uh, so maybe you could just give us the nutshell version of why we see <laughs> drafting practices in out of the London firms versus the New York firms? Okay, uh, I, I, I'll, I'll try to, it's, it's, it's a fascinating topic. And um, first of all, uh, you know, it's with some trepidation I do this like everything else in this, uh, uh, in this podcast because I'm not, uh, I'm not a New York lawyer, but I do work with some. And in fact, we, we have a huge uh, New York law practice. Um, so, uh, but I think the differences are, are basically, you know, the, the following. First of all, you know, the structure of our court system. Uh, and, uh, you know, we have a unitary court system. Uh, the judges are all selected from uh, the bar, um, almost, almost all of them from the bar, uh, where they've spent, uh, you know, where they are all self-employed. Uh, they, uh, they have to act for basically whoever knocks on the door first. Um, except for cases of extreme conflict, 
uh, they have to they have to accept instructions from whomever and um, and who are used by the rest of us who we'll call ourselves solicitors uh, as um, the sounding board for kind of very difficult legal questions and you know we, you know it is an, a question that has not yet been resolved by the courts we go to a senior uh, barrister uh, somebody who might have become a judge next day and we ask for their opinion and that what we get is not an advocacy piece it's 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 really what we would have gotten if the person was in the bench now the, the socialization of that group the unitary court system the fact that they they move there uh, and the fact that we use them um, for um, for advisory work of this sort in difficult situations uh, means that we can uh, streamline a lot of our provisions um, means that we, we 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 have a body that produces institutional certainty well in advance now that's that's the first thing the second thing i think it has to do with again the structure of our legal system i mean by the way in, in the us as i said you have many many different you know each each state has its own contract law etc you, you you have to look uh, you know what's happening in each one of them we 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 are very lucky we just have one set of uh, courts and we also unlike you we don't have we have a very simple uh, constitution which uh, you all know if you, you know, just if you know this american history parliament supreme which means we don't have lots of rules that override uh, and, and come and uh, produce uh, uncertainty because give they give the judge discretion. Um, we could discuss Dworkin and Hart uh, if you want in this context at another podcast. Now, another thing which differs, uh, uh, but doesn't differ everywhere, is that you know most of the top uh, English law firms so far are um, uh, firms that operate on lockstep, which means they have a common uh, uh, global profit pool and uh, partners are compensated by a number of points they have in the partnership, regardless of their contribution for a particular year. A lot of the New York law firms, not all, uh, some of them are like that, but not all. Uh, and a lot are uh, basically uh, allocate profit by uh, practice and, and partner. Uh, and, and if you are in the first bit, as, as we are this lockstep system, you, you, you have, um, you know, part of this is that, you know, part of the investment we make is in professional support lawyers who kind of follow all developments and are responsible for precedence. And therefore something comes in, some, some court decision comes in, some uh, new regulation comes in, uh, prospect of Brexit may affect our, um, uh, governing law clauses, choice uh, jurisdiction clauses, we immediately put out new clauses. And the leading law firms are um, also discuss some of these things between them to just make sure that they will not waste time, uh, uh, you know, debating sort of nonsense points really, um, and have a uniform approach on that. And there are there are bodies within the, the city of London that, um, that are used to, to kind of homogenize that. So, the, so it's a combination of the economic structure of the law firms and the, the professional support we get uh, and the structure of our unitary court system and the absence that we, you know of grand principles that that means that we have a, a you know overall great certainty uh, and whereas in the US I think on the whole you tend to be more diverse and I can't say more I would love to but um, I think that that's I hope that's enough that is that is really really helpful Giannis. and um i know i speak for me too also in saying thank you for coming to talk with us today um i wish we could keep you for two hours but um 
we probably we should call it. But thank you so much for coming on. Yes, hopefully this is the first of many visits you will make to our podcast. Yes, when we can we can make good even further down the list of questions, and I, I know we'll have new ones too. Mm-hmm.